This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The deadly flooding from Hurricane Florence continues in the southeast, and it shows just how important it is to predict where a storm is headed even before it makes landfall. Millions in the path of the storm knew to evacuate, thanks in part to technology developed and made here in Colorado. This technology is called drop sons. They're pretty unassuming. They sort of look like a paper towel tube. They get attached to parachutes, and they're dropped from planes that fly through hurricanes. These devices are made in Louisville, Colorado, by the company Visala. And Kevin Petty is Visala's chief science officer. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Your company actually makes a lot of meteorological devices, and I have to start with a little piece of trivia. One of your technologies is at the Louvre in Paris. Absolutely. Briefly explain what it does there. Yeah, we actually have uh, a couple of devices there. One uh, device measures the temperature, uh, and one device measures uh, the relative humidity. And this is for the Mona Lisa. It actually, you know, keeps, helps helps keep the the Mona Lisa in pristine condition. Helps keep the Mona Lisa smiling. Yeah, exactly. So measuring moisture is clearly the job of some of these devices. Obviously, that connects to hurricanes. I want to say that NOAA, the weather agency, used these drop zones to track Florence. And we should note, hurricane season continues through November. Uh, what can they tell us about the approach of a storm, especially you know over the ocean? Uh, clearly, this is a matter of public safety. Yep, uh, for sure. You know, out over the ocean, there are not a lot of observations uh, inside of a hurricane, uh, so we've had to rely in the past on things like satellite data for these observations. But that's where the the drops on comes into play as airplanes fly through the hurricane. These devices get dropped out of uh, the aircraft, and as they're falling through the atmosphere, they're measuring things like pressure, temperature, relative humidity, wind speed, and wind direction. And all these variables are extremely important for determining, hey, what's the strength of this hurricane, and and where is it going to go in the future? And this is all to protect lives and property. Okay, so it does tell you something about the direction that's so critical to folks in coastal areas, of course. And it does all that measuring as it is falling into the sea, I suppose, at which point it becomes inert. Oh, these are these are expendable one-time use devices, and, and absolutely, they gather that data. The data get transmitted back to the aircraft and then on to be used in numerical models. And it's, it's really those numerical models that help provide that guidance. These are mathematical models that simulate what's going to happen with the atmosphere in the future. And, and that includes where a hurricane is going to go. Now, dropsons as a technology are not new. They've been around for quite some time, uh, developed in large part by NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. But they have evolved in their sophistication. So what is it that a dropson can tell us today that, you know, maybe a couple of decades ago was unable to do? Yeah, the partnership that we have with NCAR has allowed us to further develop the dropson, particularly from the standpoint of accuracy. You can imagine in order to forecast what's going to happen in the future, you really need to know what's happening right now and you need an accurate understanding of that now time. And so as we've evolved these, we've gotten better at at, uh, determining 
those key parameters like temperature, pressure, relative humidity, and so forth. And to have to and, do that in, in the short window of time in which it is dropping through a hurricane. Yep, that that's absolutely true. Um, but you imagine, you know, an aircraft flying at, let's say, you know, 10,000 feet, uh, the, when you drop a drops on it, it might take about five minutes to, to you know, traverse uh, down through the atmosphere. During that time, it's taking... Uh, measurements many times per second. So we're getting very high resolution, highly accurate data. And those are the data that really help us with uh, determining intensity and track. And this is done several times over the course of several days. Like how many might be dropped in the course of a hurricane? Yeah, that's a that's actually an excellent question. It really depends on the hurricane itself. And um, when the hurricane uh, is thought to begin making th- a threat to land, that's when these air- aircraft start to fly them. And, and they don't just fly out to a hurricane and drop one radioson. They will drop several uh, during the course of their mission. So, so we can end up with a, a significant amount of data to really help uh, solve the overall problem of, of intensity and track. It's amazing to me, one, that planes even fly through hurricanes. Talk about uh, harrowing work. It is equally amazing to me that you've brought a drop sound with you, and it really is like a souped-up paper towel roll. It is amazing to me that these survive those conditions for even minutes. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. they, they, yeah. I mean, they've been designed uh, to survive very harsh conditions internally and external to the hurricane it's, itself, um, because we have to get that uh, accurate, uh, reliable data in order for us to address the the challenges around tropical cyclones and hurricanes. Kevin, I wonder, as chief science officer, if you've ever been in a plane flying through a hurricane. I have not, okay. but I would love to do it. I think it would be absolutely fascinating. I know that people that have done it, it's a great experience. Well, thanks for this window into predicting the intensity and the track of hurricanes. Thank you for having me. Kevin, Much appreciate it. Kevin Petty is chief science officer for Vaisala. The company makes dropsons, a term I learned for this story, and it's headquartered in Louisville. Dropsons help hurricane forecasters make more precise predictions as storms head towards land. The world watched in 2015 as rock climbers Tommy Caldwell of Estes Park and his partner Kevin Jorgensen did the unimaginable. Inch by nerve-wracking itch, using only their fingertips to grasp razor-sharp edges. Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen attempt the hardest climb in the world. No one has ever free-climbed the Dawn Wall. 3,000 feet of straight-up granite. Indeed, the two men became the first to free-climb the Dawn Wall, the smoothest part of a 3,000-foot rock in Yosemite called El Capitan. And by smoothest, I mean, to most of us, it looks like there's nothing to hold on to. Their feet is the subject of a new documentary from Sender Films based in Boulder. Filmmaker Josh Lowell got extraordinary access, and he joins us along with legendary climber Tommy Caldwell. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Tommy, you worked for years to climb the Dawn Wall. What was it about this rock that became such an obsession? I mean, I just want to note that before you climbed it for real, you spent a year swinging around it just looking for a route up. 
Why were you so focused on this rock? Yeah, about a year searching out the route and then six more years actually trying to become a better climber to make it work. Um, yeah, for me, it was it was just a matter of this was a place that I could be an explorer. Um, being up on a giant rock face and living up on the wall for months on end is um, incredibly challenging, incredibly exciting. And since I had a good friend up there with Kevin Jor- Jorgensen, incredibly fun. Um, you know, and, and we really were. We were like exploring an aspect of climbing that nobody had yet. And I think that was where the intrigue, it was about curiosity. When you say explorer, I mean, I think of like the great early explorers who crossed seas to find new lands. Did you think of yourself as sort of in that category? Yeah, I mean, I think the, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, you know, adventure literature, things like, uh, like the Shackleton story. Um, so this was a different scale, obviously, but we were learning how to live on the side of a rock face for weeks on end and perform at an a- athletically really high level. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really a remarkable thing to think about living on a rock face. And so you are climbing all day and at night you're in what appear to be these precariously hanging tents, these portal ledges uh, that are actually quite secure, but it's this, it's dizzying for those of us, I think, who aren't familiar with this world. I want to say that it's called the Don Wall because in the morning, the sun slowly creeps down the wall, so it looks like it's it's lighting up. And Tommy, the, the film starts with you and your mom reminiscing about your childhood. As a kid, Tommy was slow at everything. He had a lot of difficulty in school. The teachers actually at one point told us that he was mentally retarded and would never learn. I was like developmentally delayed through probably still. (laughs) Um, I was this very fragile little kid, incredibly shy. It's surprising because it seems that there's nothing fragile about you today. Do you think that might have actually propelled you? I mean, did you have something to prove as a result? <laughs> yeah, I love the uh, the clip that you chose. <laughs> um, yeah, um, you know, I think that it had an effect because my parents understood that they needed to really try and strengthen me because I was quite fragile. So um, I think I spent my whole childhood going out in the mountains and doing these very, very adventurous things because they were looking for ways to build confidence within me. And that's, you know, that was the world they lived in. And so they really believed that the outdoors and climbing could do that, which worked, you know, it worked really well. And it also, um, it also led to everything that I do now. I mean, I, I grew a huge love for being outside and being up in the mountains. And, you know, I've, I've always been dealing with sort of scary circumstances from the time I was quite a young child. And so, um, yeah, I'm kind of addicted to that in a way. Ha! Uh, indeed, the film explores the role your father plays in that sense of adventure. He was a climber. I think he was a bodybuilder, too. And he just put you in these situations that uh, were pretty terrifying and said, figure it out, kid, you know? Yeah, he kind of said, figure it out, but he really walked me through it. Like he, he viewed it in this way that, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to prepare your, your child for the world, you know, he, he was like the kind of father that wanted to prepare the child, not prepare the path for the child, but not the, or prepare the child for the path and not the path of the child. Oh. I want to play some sounds that you hear consistently throughout the film. 
It's the frustration of climbing because you bust your hump, Tommy, getting up a pitch, you know, a a section of climb, only to fall and have to start that section over again. And Josh, you show the constant work Tommy puts into his climbing. You have experts throughout the film talking about why he's a legend. Uh, Josh, how would you describe what makes him the best? Well, I think um, a large part of the film talks about not just the climb itself, but Tommy's life and all the things that he's gone through in his life that have led him to the point of becoming obsessed with this climb. And um, it's the big theme is overcoming obstacles. I mean, starting from being a frail child, as he was just describing, and figuring out you know, his dad going on this mission to toughen him up, getting into his experience of being kidnapped in Kyrgyzstan and learning how to use that as a source of strength, uh, losing his finger and having to come back stronger from that. I mean, it's just this incredible strength of character, his optimism, humility, and hard work. Uh, You know, it comes from inside. When you look at Tommy, he doesn't look like a superhero. He looks like a normal guy walking down the street. But yet his determination and optimism and willingness to dream big and never give up That's the mental strength that I think makes all of this possible. I also think it's what makes this not just a movie about climbing, but the Don Wall, uh, the documentary, really about so much more, including, indeed, the kidnapping in Kyrgyzstan. Tommy, I wonder if you'd talk briefly about that harrowing trip. This was with your girlfriend at the time, Beth. And uh, I'll play a a clip from the film in a moment about how you eventually escaped. But uh, just briefly, what happened to you? Yeah, it was my first big international climbing expedition when I was 21 years old. Um, and we went to Kyrgyzstan, a really remote, remote mountain region in Kyrgyzstan, and ended up finding ourselves in the middle of this like little war that broke out. We got kidnapped by a rebel group called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, and we were held hostage for six days. And we eventually escaped when I pushed... One of our captors, um, our one remaining captor at that point, off a cliff. And then we ran six miles down valley to a Kyrgyz military outpost. You were alerted to the fact that you were in danger by the presence of gunshots. And you realized that they were firing in your direction. I think you really didn't eat or drink for much of those six days. Uh, It must have just been awful. Yeah, yeah. We were camped in our portal edges, our little hanging cots a thousand feet up the wall when we were taken hostage. So, yeah, they use these kind of long-range assault rifles to shoot up at us and warn us or, you know, tell us to come down. And, yeah, we didn't have any food or water. We, We were able to get to rivers occasionally during those six days, but no food for six days. We were on the verge of hypothermia. I mean, this was intense at a level that, you know, almost nobody experiences in life. And, um, you know, in in a lot of ways, it was a really hard experience that that took me a while to recover from. But it also showed me what we're capable of. I mean, we had to endure so much. And um, in the long run, that was a very empowering thing to know that we can we can outlast and we can have so much strength when things are so difficult. 
I'm glad you said that, Tommy Caldwell, because it's a line that I actually wrote down as I watched the film. We are capable of so much more than we could ever really imagine. I kept thinking about my own life, like, what is it I could achieve that I don't even think I could achieve? Uh, I think this film will put the viewer in that mindset. So, so here's you talking in the film about what you did to get away from uh, one of your captors. So I just ran up behind him and I put one hand on his back and grabbed his gun strap and my other hand went on his chest and I just gave a push to send him flying off this cliff. We saw him hit a ledge, bounce off of it, and just fall out of sight into the darkness. And you were in tears after you had to do that to save your life and the lives of those with you. You questioned your decision to do what you did. You were racked by guilt. How do you see it now? You know, at the time, that rebel that I pushed, he was like an 18-year-old hired mercenary. I saw him as a victim of his own circumstance. He didn't seem like an evil man. And so, yeah, I was, I was messed up. I was pretty torn about the whole thing. Um, and I would say today... I still feel quite bad about that, but I also have come to an understanding that that's, that's what we had to do. Like we most likely either would have died up there on the mountain or we would have, you know, made it to, uh, you know, a, a, some sort of camp for the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and held hostage who knows how long. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, I, I was racked by guilt for a while, but now I'm, yeah, I, I still have that, but now I feel like I'm more empowered by the whole thing. Shall we say what, what happened to him or leave that for the film? Spoiler alert. <laughs> okay. We'll give a, we'll give people a moment to turn down their radios if they so, so choose. Go ahead, Josh. Well, it turned out, um, in the end, some journalists investigating the story discovered that um, the captor that Tommy pushed actually had survived the fall. And um, I think that, the, as Tommy described, he was still deeply conflicted by knowing that he had made that decision. But in the end, realizing that the man had survived, uh, I think was quite a relief. I should say, Tommy, that you are perhaps the world's best climber, despite the fact that when you were in your 20s, you had a, a bad accident. You were with your girlfriend, Beth, at the time. Let's listen. About a year after Kyrgyzstan, we were remodeling this, like, tiny little cabin. And Tommy was using his parents' old table saw. Tommy did something that you should never do, which is he tried to pull a small piece of wood through the table saw. Beth finds her finger, but ultimately they are unable to reattach it. And according to the film, a doctor tells you you will never climb again. Was, was, did you take that to be like a dare, Tommy? Yeah, you know, I did in the end. Um, and part of that was Beth really just looking at me and being like, that doctor has no idea what you're capable of. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those that, that part of my life was kind of driven by these these worries like climbing was all I had after Kyrgyzstan. It was my way to cope with Kyrgyzstan. And then I thought I was going to lose that. And, you know, because of the support and kind of the way that I was raised, I was able to turn that around and actually find strength from it. And ironically, losing my finger became 
the catalyst for the biggest period of growth. Like if that wouldn't have happened, I, you know, I probably never would have succeeded that well as a professional rock climber. Huh. We're talking about the new documentary, The Dawn Wall, and I'd like to talk about the actual climb. It's painstaking. Josh, briefly set the scene for us. It's, it's the winter of 2015. And what's ahead of these two men? Well, they've spent six to seven years practicing the climb. Tommy had to basically come up with this concept to visualize the idea that it could even be possible to climb this 3,000-foot section of wall that, as you said earlier, looks completely blank. No one had conceived that it could be free-climbed, that is to climb it with just your hands and your feet. The ropes are there for safety, but they don't help you actually get up the wall. So then once his partner, Kevin, joined him, they spent six years attempting it, failing repeatedly, figuring out piece by piece exactly how to do it. And they started up the wall on December 27th, just a couple days after Christmas. And um, they they would end up spending 19 days living on the wall, climbing it section by section, falling repeatedly. And there was some big drama that unfolded during the climb itself. And it turns out that... uh, all these relationship issues between Tommy and Kevin come to the fore. Yeah. And it was a, it was a spectacular, a spectacular uh, drama playing out in real time. And one or both of them catch colds. I, I just found that remarkable. Like, I'm, I'm such a bad, sick person, and you were doing <laughs> the most incredible feat with colds. Uh, I also want to say that eyes were on you. I mean, there were people at the bottom, at the top, who were... Uh, witnessing this feat and the crowds got bigger as you guys got closer. What was it like to be in a sort of fishbowl as you were attempting the hardest thing you'd ever done, Tommy Caldwell? Uh, It was very bizarre. I mean, when we started up that climb, there weren't really eyes on us, not many at least. And so this sort of media explosion happened about eight days into our 19-day climb and then continued until we topped out. And, uh, you know, we could look down from from the side of the wall and see all these news trucks down in the valley. Um, We get good cell phone service up there so we could kind of follow along with the news stories. And at some point it just became a bit much. Honestly, (laughs) we decided that we were going to stop following the news stories. Um, Luckily, Josh was on the ground as uh, sort of like dealing with all of it for us. So that was nice. And um, yeah, and then uh, luckily I uh, accidentally dropped my phone off the wall about three or four days before we topped out, which... uh, which was a blessing. Just to not be so connected, I guess. What, what's, yeah. what, do, what do your hands begin to look like after 19 days of the most intense climbing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, the skin on our fingertips was really like what was going to make or break the, you know, our success up there. So um, they get beat up tremendously. I mean, the, the knuckles are bloody. The um, you know the the environment is so dry up there that you you get these really thick calluses that sometimes can crack and start bleeding, and so we're constantly trying to deal with that. Um, you know we're doing triage up there, really trying to keep our skin in as best shape it can be. Amazing. Do you have a big new goal? Just briefly. Uh, yeah, not, I mean, nothing like the Donwall. That kind of stuff doesn't come around every day. But climbing is my food. I'm out there um, climbing all over the world. Um, but ironically, in about a month and a half, I'm going to go and start looking at a line right next to the Donwall. Huh. Um, hopefully it won't take me seven years. Climbing is my food. I think that's my favorite line. Thanks to both of you for mm-hmm. being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. 
Colorado's Tommy Caldwell, who, along with his partner Kevin Jorgensen, was the first to achieve the unimaginable in 2015, becoming the first to successfully climb Yosemite's Don Wall. And Josh Lowell has directed the new documentary. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's no secret that money can help win elections. The more money a candidate has, the more money a candidate can raise, the more they can advertise. Money is a defining issue in the Colorado governor's race, and it's the focus of Purplish, our new political podcast. Creator and host Sam Brash is joined by CPR's business reporter to talk about money in politics. Okay, CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. Where do you want to start? Let's start with you uh, opening this email I sent you. You want me to open my email? Yeah, just open your email. It's something special just for you. There's sort of like an envelope. It looks like kind of an evite. I I just, I open the envelope. Just click it. It's like a, a video with a package at the door and written on the package it says Hamstergram and... Oh my god, a hamster just jumped out and it's like the hamster is a singing telegram. Ben, what is this? It's a hamster. I'm thinking of you. Medic! (laughs) Alright, that's really sweet, but like, why did you want to start the episode this way? So this is an e-greeting card from a company called Blue Mountain, and probably you haven't heard of them before, but they were big in the early days of the internet. You have heard of someone who helped to build this company, Jared Polis. The Democratic nominee for governor. You're saying his his money comes from an e-greeting card company? Yeah, and I spoke with him recently about his early days as a tech entrepreneur. Yeah, electronic greeting cards, a free way to send a, a communication to a loved one or friend or a greeting for a holiday. And while that might sound like a simple idea now, it caught on. Big like time. What it became, but it actually grew to become the sixth most popular site on the internet during the holiday months uh, in 1999. So he and his family eventually sell this company for almost $800 million. And he saw before most that the internet was going to change everything, even greeting cards. And love him or hate him, agree or disagree with his policies, you can't deny that Polis was ahead of major changes, a pioneer really, in business and in politics. Okay, so he's a candidate, but you're saying he he's not just that, that he's actually changed how politics works? Exactly, because it's not like he just sat on all that money. Jared Polis spent it. He spent it on his own campaign. He spent it on ballot issues. He spent it on the campaigns of others, helping progressive candidates and causes. And in the process, he profoundly altered how money was spent on politics in Colorado in ways that many people probably don't even realize. Okay, that's what this week's episode of Purplish is about. Jared Polis and his money. He's put $18 million of his own money to help win the governor's seat so far, dwarfing what any candidate had spent here ever before. So what we're going to look at is how he made all that money and what it means when millionaires or billionaires spend whatever it takes on a campaign.
then I think by now most people have probably heard of Jared Polis. I mean, his ads are everywhere. And I think even before that, people knew him as sort of this uh, unusual, passionate congressman from Boulder. But tell me about how Jared Polis got started. So I think the story gets started really in 1993 when Polis is a freshman at Princeton University. The internet is really in its early days. We're talking text and links. Internet is uh, that massive computer right. network, the one that's becoming really big now. It was still a mystery even to morning news anchors. No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers. Allison, can you explain what internet is? But Polis and his buddies in college, they're kind of tech nerds and they're playing around with this thing. And they get together and decide that they want to make it easier for people to access this thing called the Internet. And they started small. With like 10 modems and a server and people could dial in, you know, the old... And they would be able to uh, access the Internet. For the kids out there, that's an approximation of what it sounded like to dial into the Internet. So his friends eventually start a company called American Information Systems and they sell it for $22 million. How does he get from there to e-greeting cards? So his family had a business called Blue Mountain Cards. It was based in Boulder. Kind of a sleepy, sappy greeting card company. And his dad uh, is also kind of a tech nerd, Jared Polis's dad. And he sends him a kind of e-greeting card, just a crude animation. Because I'm away at college and, and across the country. And uh, it was a way that they, we could communicate together between our family. And so Jared and his dad see the possibilities, right, that we can go beyond paper cards and create these e-greeting cards. They start a website, and Blue Mountain just takes off. The Polises sell, and this is actually one in a series of deals that Polis and his family close, about a seven-year period that nets them about more than a billion dollars. Wow. How does Polis go from there to a political career? So Polis actually had a long interest in politics. When he was 11, he fought a development in his neighborhood where he played. He was actually a poli-sci major at Princeton. Mm -hmm. And so he jumped into his first political race here in Colorado. And even though he's 25 years old at the time, he has a big advantage. Money. Lots of money. And one of the first people to realize just how much is this guy. Uh, can you tell me your name and title, please? Uh, right now, Ben Alexander, no title. Okay, so who's Ben Alexander? Well, he's actually the first to really feel the punch of Polis's political might. It's the year 2000, and Alexander is a member of the Colorado Board of Education, and he's up for re-election. And he gets word that maybe it's not going to be the cakewalk he thought it was going to be. At lunchtime in one of our board meetings, Gully Sanford, who was the only Democrat on the board, uh, said, we have a, a guy that's willing to spend a million bucks to run against you. And to be honest, I kind of chuckled because I couldn't imagine anybody would spend a million dollars for a seat on the State Board of Education. And even today, it's still not a big money race. So Alexander sees that Polis is ready to spend a ton of money on his campaign. I mean, does he assume he's just going to be blown out of the water? Yes. Yeah, I jokingly said I ought to write him a letter and just give me a check for half a million dollars and we'll save you half a million dollars and I'll step out. So Alexander thinks that there's just no way that he can compete. The Republican Party doesn't really want to support him all that much either. They can't match $1.3 million. So Ben Alexander ends up spending about $10,000 on the race and he only does one campaign event. What about Polis? What does he do to campaign in this race? So he really barnstorms the state and he soups up this school bus. He says he makes it really high tech and he's everywhere. 
it ends up being too close to call on election night. And so Ben Alexander flies to Denver to attend a school board meeting the next day. And then that night, uh, after the meeting, uh, he called me and said he was going to declare victory. And I said, well, you might want to wait until we finish the recount because it was a mandatory recount. Wow. And then but he went ahead and declared anyway. So when we asked Polis's campaign about this, they forwarded us some press accounts from the time. And during the recount, Polis says that he is confident that he'll win based on the numbers that he's seen. Still, it takes several weeks after the election. The race is finally called and Polis does win by 90 votes. And he joins the school board. But Ben Alexander kind of realizes that this is just the beginning. There was a concerted effort by uh, Democrats with a lot of money in Colorado that got together and, and were laying on a strategy to take over state government. What Ben Alexander is getting at here is that Polis doesn't just care about education in Colorado. He wants Democrats to take back control of the state legislature. And in many respects, they have been successful. When do Republicans get a sense of what Polis and his allies might be up to? Really, on election night, 2004. From NBC News, Decision 2004. And the pace is reaching warp speed on this election. 2004, so this is what, four years after he won that seat on the Board of Education? Exactly, and this is when it starts to become clear how money, his money, would shift how campaigns are funded and even alter the relationship between big donors and the party. And this is a great night for Republicans pretty much everywhere. George W. Bush defeats John Kerry, wins re-election, he increases his margin. They increase their majorities, Republicans do, in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. They take state houses across the country champagne corks are popping everywhere except for Colorado. Doesn't Bush win Colorado that year? Sure, but the picture is completely different at the state level. To say that Colorado Republicans were stunned the morning after election day is a gross understatement. So this is Rob Whitwer, a former state house Republican. I don't think in anybody's wildest dreams would they have imagined that there would be such a, a significant reversal of fortune uh, for a party that had for decades controlled the state legislature without any serious challenge. I mean, what happened? How did Democrats manage to pull that off? The Gang of Four. That's what happened. <laughs> the Gang of Four. So who are they? So this is a group of wealthy, liberal-minded folks. Pat Stryker, Rut Bridges, Tim Gill, and by far the youngest person in this group, Jared Polis. Full disclosure here, we got to say that Rep Bridges is a past CPR board president and helped donate the broadcast center that we're sitting in right now. Yeah, that's true. And in 2004, he's part of this group. They used their fortunes to jump into Colorado politics in a big way. Rob Whitwer, who we heard from earlier, he's actually the co-author of a book with an investigative journalist. The book is called The Blueprint, and it really digs into the details of what happened in that 2004 election. What the Democrats did in 2004 was to build a party apparatus outside the party that was completely unburdened by the baggage of political history. Why was it an advantage at this point for these wealthy guys to be working outside of the political party, in this case, the Democratic Party? So any political party has factions and personalities and a history that bogs down the party. It makes it less efficient. Maybe money's not going to the races that are most competitive. It's going to the candidates who are more popular. Uh, and so what was also important at this time was that campaign finance reform was taking hold in Colorado. This limited contributions to the 
the party. So the party couldn't raise the same kind of money it did in the past to support these races. So you're saying the Gang of Four, which includes Polis, steps into this void. Right, and it's not just about their money. It's about trying out tactics on local races that had never been tried before. Yeah, it was a quantum leap in technology. It was a quantum leap in coordination. So one story from the book was these Palm Pilots. They would give Palm Pilots to Democratic canvassers, and they would sync them to a central database at the end of the day, and you'd have these rich files on voter contact. Now, this was unheard of at the local level in 2004. Well, there's no question that Jared Polis, with his tech background... And as a funder of this coordinated effort, really saw the synergies between financial resources and application of data. It sounds like Polis, he was incredibly involved in making sure other Democrats had a chance to succeed. But at this point, when he's helping them and sitting on the state school board, what's he thinking about for his own career? So around this time, the media is starting to notice Polis even more. He makes Forbes magazine's list of rich kids, uh, more money even than Britney Spears at her peak, which was surprising <laughs> to me. One profile quotes a party official as, don't be surprised if he runs for Congress, which he eventually does. He tells a reporter in Westward, actually around this time, that he might start more charter schools, which he does, or heck, he might even run for governor someday. Now, this is 14 years ago when that article landed. And this speaks to his ambition, I think. Remember that he had still just won one race himself, a lowly Board of Education race by only 90 votes. You're listening to Purplish from CPR News. When we come back, Sam looks into how Jared Polis and other candidates have poured money into the governor's race. What that means for the election and for Colorado's democracy. This is Colorado Matters. More now from Purplish, a podcast from CPR News about Colorado's political identity. Today's focus, how money plays into the governor's race. Here again is host and creator Sam Brash, along with CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus. Ben, when we left off, uh, Polis was still the youngest member of the Colorado State Board of Education. When does he decide to enter the national political scene? In 2008, and he runs for Congress, and he does it in a very Jared Polis fashion. In these times, we need leaders who understand how to create jobs. Jared Polis does. Jared started his first business at the age of 16, and now has created... He spends huge sums of money, more than $5 million in the primary, which was a record. And it becomes actually the most expensive congressional primary race in the nation. Wow. And this time he wins pretty handily. I want to thank you for this opportunity to serve you and to serve our great nation. And I look forward to taking office in January and working hard to turn this country around. So he's been in Congress for about a decade now. What kind of politician has he been during that period of time? It's actually kind of hard to categorize. On some fronts, he's classically liberal. One of the great benefits of the Obama health care plan is that we will allow people to pursue their potential. He's gay, so he's been a leading voice on LGBTQ issues. I mean, the president, like so many American families, has come to the recognition that uh, gay and lesbian Americans ought to be able to uh, have committed relationships. And have He has a libertarian bent. He's railed against the Patriot Act. He suggested that it might be worthwhile to privatize the Postal Service. He has a tech background, so maybe he's one of the few members of Congress who actually knows how Bitcoin works. But for all the time he spends in Washington, he definitely doesn't ignore Colorado politics. What do you mean? 
So I look back at 18 years of contributions in Colorado, and he's given to more than 400 different political campaigns. We're talking little races, school board races, all the way up to governor of Colorado. Not a lot of money, sometimes $800 here, a couple hundred dollars there, but it's widespread and it's sustained throughout the years. So clearly he's not a congressman with his head just in D.C. politics. Why did he decide that this was the year to make the leap from Congress into the governor's race? I'm Jared Polis, and I'm running for governor because Colorado faces real challenges. Well, Hickenlooper is term limited, and Polis won his congressional seat back in 2008. So this is really the first time he could shoot for this office without challenging a sitting Democratic governor. It's also a good environment for Democrats this year, given that it's a midterm with an unpopular Republican president. And one thing I know about you, Ben, is that when campaign finance reports come out, you're you're so excited. It's like you're getting really like, am. yeah, you you are literally giddy to pour over these spreadsheets and to see where all this money is coming from, where it's going. After Polis declares his candidacy, how does he start showing up in these campaign finance reports? So I think it was always clear from the get-go that Polis was going to spend millions of dollars on his own candidacy, but it was still actually shocking to see how much it influenced the campaigns of the other people running for governor. Every time I opened up these campaign finance reports, millions more was pouring into these races, including on the Republican side. But let's focus on the Democrats. We knew that this was going to be a competitive primary. Kerry Kennedy, a former state treasurer with the support of the teachers unions. Mike Johnston was in. He's a former state senator. He had big support. But this was on a level the likes of which I had never seen before, especially when it comes to Mike Johnston and Jared Polis. And just to be clear, Johnston and Polis had very different models for supporting their campaigns. Johnston had a super PAC that was taking in donations and spending money on his behalf, while Polis was giving money directly to his campaign. Right. Johnston has a super PAC called Frontier Fairness, and it's accepting millions of dollars from people like former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Donations to super PACs are unlimited. But the Supreme Court has also said that any individual can donate as much as they want to their own campaigns. So really, it's two different kinds of uncapped spending. And this difference, it really breaks out into the open during a Denver 7 debate this year. Because I think the challenge is if you're going to advocate for campaign finance. Johnston accuses Polis of starting this arms race with his personal wealth. This means that you can buy in while no one else can raise any money. So I think that you ought to be able to... And Polis fires back that he's just trying to match Johnson's PAC money. Look, if you didn't have all these out-of-state donors, I wouldn't have needed to put in my own money to keep up with you. So, you know, it's, money begets money. You know, it's, it's you, you got to compete to get your message out. From the research you've done, do you know who started it? So yeah, I looked this up, and Mike Johnston was really the first out of the gate. He announced in 2017 that he was running for governor, and at the time, he started making headlines for breaking records for campaign contributions. So you could make an argument that Polis isn't the one who really started the money war but he certainly finishes it. They're very close for the early primary season in terms of campaign contributions. But as we get closer to primary election day, Jared Polis just swamps him with cash. And this wasn't just on the Democrat side. Victor Mitchell, who ran for governor in the Republican primary, he spent $5 million of his own money, too. Polis, of course, wins the primary. Has this kind of spending continued into the general election? Definitely. So the Republican Walker Stapleton... 
He's also rich. He's invested $1.3 million of his own money so far, mostly in the primary, where he was trying to offset all that Victor Mitchell money. Now, a million dollars would have been a lot of money in Colorado politics just a decade ago, but Stapleton's $1.3 million is totally overshadowed by Polis's $12 million in the primary. Wow. And just like other candidates that have gone up against Polis's money... They make the money itself a campaign issue. Stapleton says this doesn't translate well to voters. I don't think that's going to sit well with Coloradans. I don't think that they like the idea that somebody uh, is trying to buy an election. And that's Um, pretty much been the standard to tackle and against Polis since his first days in politics. Is it even possible to buy an election? Because Polis is far from the first wealthy candidate to spend a ton of money on his own campaign. My understanding is that plenty of those self-financed candidates tank on election day. That's true. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're going to win. So I have just called Governor-elect Brown, and it is time now for Californians to unite. Meg Whitman was probably the prime recent example of this. She spent $140 million of her own money and still lost. Ross Perot, too, if you want to go back even farther. But it's also true that rich candidates, they have flaws like any other candidate. Still, their money makes them instant contenders. What about Polis? When you spoke to him, what did he say about money in politics and his own money in politics? He says that the campaign finance system is essentially broken. Well, you know, again, I think that finding a way that people can raise the money they need for elections without having to rely on uh, special interests or PACs or corporations or self-funding is the answer. Polis says he supports some sort of alternative, like public financing. But in the meantime, he thinks that his wealth is actually a hedge against the influence of wealthy donors and corporations. Rather than spend, uh, you know, every evening in a, you know, steakhouse in Denver with a bunch of millionaires, I've been able to have over 250 free meet and greets all over the state. So he says that self-financing is not ideal, but it is more transparent. And he says it does buy him a certain level of political independence. Ben, does that argument remind you at all of any other politicians who've run for national office recently? Sure. It sounds an awful lot like President Trump as a candidate. I'm self-funding my campaign. In so many ways, these two candidates are completely different. But in one way in which they are similar is this idea that they are above influence. And those PACs control the candidates. Okay? They totally control. Carson... In the end, Trump only paid for a fraction of his total campaign costs. But it does show that this is a powerful talking point for wealthy candidates, that they can make this claim that in an era dominated by money and politics, they aren't accountable to anybody except themselves and the voters. Polis is claiming independence, and he'd contrast that to Walker Stapleton, his opponent in the race for governor, who's already getting up to a million dollars in support from the Koch brothers and at least half a million dollars so far from oil and gas companies. So how should we be thinking about wealthy candidates? Are they the cause of the problem of money in politics, or are they a response to that problem? So I actually wondered the same thing, and that's why I got in touch with Jacob Hacker of Yale. He studies money in politics, and he says that wealthy, self-financed candidates are a symptom of the problem. I think the bottom line is that campaigns have become grotesquely expensive in um, in the U.S., and it's an arms race where both sides are upping uh, the ante. And so as a result, you know, there is uh, there is more and more emphasis on your either you're having a lot of money or you're being able to raise a lot of money from fellow rich people. And that means that a lot of the people running for office today are themselves extremely affluent. 
So he says this isn't the biggest problem in American politics, but it's one that's not going away anytime soon. I think it's pretty clear that in a democracy that is supposed to represent the interests of all Americans, that having a tiny slice of America um, be the only real candidates for office is a problem. But I think there are attempts to deal with it, right? I think there are multiple ballot proposals just right here in Colorado this year. Right. Money is on the ballot in more ways than one. So a prominent Republican was able to get a question on this ballot, which he says will close the millionaire loophole. Basically, if a candidate spends more than a million dollars on his own race, then the campaign finance limits rise for the other candidates. So their supporters would be able to give five times the current limit. Hmm. There's also a measure in Denver that takes a different approach to the issue. It would offer some matching funds to candidates, so the old public financing route. So it sounds like, at least in Colorado, people are looking for ways that anybody can be competitive in a political race, even if they're not super wealthy. But because this is a symptom of the fact that campaigns are enormously expensive, as Jacob Hacker says, grotesquely expensive, we haven't seen the last of rich candidates like Jared Polis who will pour their fortunes into their campaigns. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Okay, for those of you playing along at home, here's the latest financial scorecard on the governor's race. So far, Jared Polis has brought in $18.6 million for his campaign. And yes, 18.3 of that comes from Polis himself. As for Walker Stapleton, he's raised $2.7 million so far, with just over a million coming from his own pocket. CPR's Sam Brash with Purplish. Next time, Sam looks at how family history can cut both ways for candidates. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts, and you can hear it Mondays through Election Day, right here on Colorado Matters. And that's our show for today. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News.